Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 109. We left off last week hearing that the Cuban 50th Division had been moving towards the Southwest African border. A clear message to Pretoria that Fidel Castro was no longer going to tolerate the losses that he and Fapla had endured in southern Angola. All this as the South Africans, Cubans, Angolans, Americans and Russians were negotiating the future of Namibia. Time was running out. And in particular for a small group of men, a platoon if you like, it was going to take the brunt of a MiG bombing close to the Kalkwe Dam just across the cut line. Sent to deal with this threat was Commandant Jan Hochart, who by now had discovered that the biggest threat seemed to lie around the small town of Tichipa, around 50 kilometers inside Angola. Besides thousands of Cuban soldiers, it had also begun to sprout radio antennas in what appeared to be anti-aircraft positions. Because the South Africans were stretched so thinly, the South African Defence Force top brass could only send 500 soldiers for a planned assault on the town, all three two battalion men. The idea was to send a second conventional force which would be set up and moved to Rokana for a much larger incursion. This duty fell on 61 Mech, its weary men now slightly recovered after a bit of R&R back in South Africa, and the equipment was repaired, in particular the battered tanks. There was no other conventional battalion posted in Ovambaland, and the order came for the battalion to get ready to move once more. The Cuban threat had led the SADF to call a general mobilization of citizen force troops, and now General Yanni Khalnes was prepared to go full PR. The Rokana Falls hydroelectric scheme was in danger, and the Cuban build-up on the lower reaches of the Kuneni River meant this strategic point needed protecting. This single scheme powered most of Namibia, while it also sent water to Avambaland. It was not going to be an easy task. By now, thousands, some say at least 10,000 and possibly as many as 11,000 Cubans had shifted south, many within 55 kilometers of the cutline in the western theater around Tichipa. There were also around 2,000 Swapo fighters alongside their Cuban allies. Facing these were just 500 members of 3-2 Battalion initially. Shortly after June the 9th, 1988, Hochard sent the first three companies across the Colquitt Bridge on board 10 Mercedes Unimogs. They were armed with 81mm mortars, 14.5mm machine guns, and their 106mm recoilless guns. These were the only real protection from Cuban T-55 and T-64 tanks. Hochard wanted to avoid a direct scrap with a large Cuban army. These three companies were going to conduct guerrilla operations to harry the Cubans, blowing up their infrastructure, mining the roads, and trying to target Swapo in particular. I told them, just maintain the situation until 61 Mech gets here, said Hochard. The three were split, two headed off up the Kuneni towards Tichipa, the third northeasterly to the area just south of Zangongo, where it was thought the main Cuban assault would be launched. They were the early warning. The Cubans were, in fact, going to do just that. The Cubans had started deploying in a classic Russian-style conventional approach with their own companies supported by a dozen tanks. These would move south as close as 12 kilometers from the Kolkwe Dam and Rokana, the artillery laying down a barrage ahead of the movement to chase away any South Africans, then to push forward with MiGs in support. By now, the Cubans were driving between Tachipa and Zangongo in single vehicles, sometimes jeeps, sometimes just a diesel tanker. They were obviously no longer afraid of the SADF in this part of Angola after so many years of being forced to conduct large convoys. The Cubans were sending one or two companies ahead of these assault groups who dig in a few kilometers ahead of the main body 
and 3-2 Battalion Reconnaissance picked up these point trenches quite quickly. Hochart was upset that the Cubans and the Angolans were running around in the bush so openly. It was time, he said, to rough them up. The Commandant had no idea that his order was going to lead to a marathon run for some of his men through the Angolan semi-desert. The companies outside Tachipa reported there were two main Cuban outposts south of the town, one to the west, the other to the east. There was a dirt road between the outposts that headed south, and after consulting company commander Captain Maurice Devonish, Hochart decided to prod the southwestern outpost first. They had received a little mortar fire just to warm them up. Then 3-2 would monitor the road, hoping that reinforcements would be sent from Techipa and Devonish's men would ambush them. 3-2 moved into position during the night, 90 men in Unimogs, along with two 81mm mortars, two heavy machine guns, and one of the 106mm recoilless guns. It was early June, a cold morning awaited, but soon the mortars were in position, ready for action. Moments later, five Cuban sappers were spotted walking along the nearby road, sweeping the surface with mine detectors. The 3-2 section heard vehicles in support of these men, but decided to shoot them anyway in one sustained burst. Seconds later, Fapla Company ran into view and the small section stood up and attacked their enemy, shooting as they went. Things were weighted against 3-2, however, because armoured cars could be heard nearby, and the assault was stopped dead in its tracks. Then the 3-2 men turned to escape the danger. They radioed their mortars, which had been set up around two kilometres in the rear, asking them to open fire, and they dropped a curtain of shells in an arc around the retreating 3-2 section, which was now sprinting back to the Unimox. A BRDM burst from the bush, and 3-2 shot dead its Cuban commander as he stood in the open hatch. The other BRDMs withdrew, and at that moment the South African soldiers heard the tanks. What they hadn't realised was that there was a third Cuban outpost, and the South Africans had started their mortar back to assault less than a kilometre from this position. It was heavily defended. Now they were caught in open country. It was at this moment that their sprint was going to turn into a marathon. Devonish's order to his men on the trot was to make it to the Unimogs, chuck their equipment in the back, particularly the all-important radios, and then hightail it out of there. They were being attacked by two groups of tanks, around 20 in all, zeroing in on them from two different directions. But somehow they made it to the Unimogs and threw the gear in the back of one. The driver took off as the men began to swing themselves aboard, but then drove straight into a hole dug by a warthog. The second Unimog ploughed into the back of the first, and that was that. Their transport was damaged beyond repair, as the second radiator was pulverised. Leave the vehicles, was the call. Run for it. The Unimogs were on fire as they fled. Devonish hoped the radios would be burned to a crisp before the Cubans got their hands on this vital device with its codes and frequency-hopping technology. The first inkling Hochart had of how badly things had gone wrong was after Devonish had run his first 10 kilometres through the sandy bush and then radioed an update. That update was interrupted by the arrival of a T-55. Devonish ran off again, and the next call was later that afternoon. By then, he'd been running for quite a few hours. Hochart was worried. How many men were dead? How many had escaped? He knew how much propaganda had emanated from Johann Papenfuss being wounded and then wheeled out in Havana. He didn't want another man going through this humiliation. Pretoria's politicians were going to have a cadenza. They cared less about the soldier and more about the bad press they were going to receive. At least 11 men were missing, according to Devonish. 11? This was terrible. Were they alive? wondered Hochart. By the end of the day, Devonish had outrun the Cubans despite their tanks and trucks. Quite a feat. But the South Africans had been at the receiving end of what they used to call a contact 
where Swapo would be detected and they would run through the bush trying to escape from the SADF special forces tracking them down with biffles and caspers and choppers. The worm had turned. One piece of good news, Devonish was now joining his fellow marathon runners who told him that no one had been seen going down. It appeared all three two's men were alive. Hochart then fixated on the equipment, tossed into the back of the Unimogs. Hopefully the stuff was melted and burnt out. Devonish reported he tracked back and found the Unimogs were gutted. Nothing was left. What he didn't know is that the Cubans had already found some of the equipment. A Bosbork light plane was ordered up their spotter aircraft. Nothing could be seen. No sign of the missing men. Then the first six arrived at dawn the following morning, still carrying their weapons, but down to only a handful of rounds. They'd fought their way out. A miracle, really. Five others walked into the Ruakana base that night, exhausted but unscathed. All had run the equivalent of a marathon in their quest to avoid being shot up by T-55s and BRDMs. The original plan to move on to Chipo was shelved after the South Africans' ordeal, and now it was back to Boer War tactics of hit and run. They'd start with the outposts, take them out one by one, and hopefully using their mobility, avoid being trapped as the Cubans sent their powerful mechanized forces south from Sangongo in response. Cat and Mouse was back. What Hochart and the SADF didn't know was what was waiting for them, and it was going to be a big shock. As usual, first things first, time for the Rekis to head into the area to gather intelligence about what lay on the road east of Tachupa. The Rekis were duly sent out and radioed back with some news. They had seen large missiles glistening in the sun alongside the road, but had no idea what these were. Commander Dick Lord, South African Air Force head, was adamant that these had to be taken out or his mirages and impalas would be in danger in the coming assaults around Tachipa. The Reggies were told to help direct the first bombing run on the missile systems at 7 the next morning, using flares and marker beacons. Remarkably, the men crept into position during that night, and placed their markers despite the heavy presence of Fapla and the Cubans. It was early the next morning that Lord radioed Hochart with some bad news. It was too dangerous to bomb this missile system. The MiGs were flying all over the show, and he was calling off the sortie. Then a sort of communication and strategy mismatch took place. After telling the Rekis to pull out their beacons and return to base, Lord contacted Hochart saying they'd be back that night for an attack. But now the Rekis had switched off their high-power radios and Hochart could no longer reach him. If he could fly on board a Bosbok, climb to higher altitude, he might just be able to reach these Rekis on their smaller low-power radios. Lord gave permission and Hochart joined a Bosbok pilot who'd received strict instructions to stay below 1,000 feet and not to stray too far north over the Angolan border. Both orders were going to be disobeyed, with an almost disastrous result. They flew below 1,000 feet and into Angola, roughly 20 kilometers across the cutline from Ruakana. No sign of the wreckage, although Hochart, sitting alongside the pilot, was trying every frequency he could. Night had fallen. He was reading the codes by torchlight and yelled, Man, go higher for God's sake, or we're wasting our time. They had climbed above 1,000 feet AGL and close to 30 kilometers into Angola, when in the dark, the pilot shouted he'd spotted a flare. It wasn't a flare. It was a surface-to-air missile that had been fired at the Bosbok, curving into the air, then turning and flying straight towards the aircraft. The pilot dived straight down, and the binoculars and torch smashed into Hochart's face as the G's turned everything upside down. It screamed over their head, missing by around 20 meters, making a giant vrushing sound, and then headed over Ruakana where it exploded, 
breaking windows and causing consternation. The pilot was in quite a bit of trouble, courtesy of Hochart's insistence on flying higher and further. But the Mirage and Impala attack was cancelled. The SAM gang on the ground was alert, and the near-miss had shaken up the SAF Force top brass. Still, the attack was rescheduled for the next morning, although quite how they thought this was going to be possible, with everyone now wide awake down there, I don't know. The poor Bosbok pilot had no rest. He was ordered back up the following morning. Now Hochart was joined by 3-2 Battalion Intelligence Officer Captain Hermann Mulder. They made contact with everyone, the SA Air Force, the backup units, but not the forward recce group. Hochart again ordered the pilot higher. Apparently he hadn't learned his lesson. Apparently the pilot hadn't either because he followed the order. Still, they thought they were facing SAM-3s, which had a much more limited range, but they were wrong. By now the first two Impalas had taken off from Ondangwa and the Bosborg had climbed above 4,000 feet, flying east into the sun, when they spotted a flash from the edge of a Shona about 35 kilometers away. They thought it was the windshield of a car, said Captain Mulder to author Fred Bridgeland. Next moment I saw a blue welding flare which seemed to hover above the ground for a second. Then it was coming in our direction like a streak of lightning. Mulder yelled a warning and for the second time in 24 hours Hochart experienced aerobatics as the Bosbork went into a vertical dive. The missile missed, the equipment bounced off everything and the flares they were carrying pierced the canopy, cracking the glass. It was the hand of God that saved us, said Mulder. More like the hand of the pilot. They landed shortly afterwards, everyone trembling. The pilot was in for another bollocking. Meanwhile, the Impalas were forced to break off their bombing run. When the SAF was completed its analysis, they realized that the Bosbok and their Impalas weren't flying against SAM-3s. They were attacking SAM-6s, far more advanced weapons that were long-range, up to 60 kilometers. They could fire well into a Vumberland if the Cubans chose to do so. They could aim at the SA Air Force aircraft inside Southwest Africa. The impetus and tech war had shifted to favor the Angolans. This was clearly not a position from which the SADF could easily recover. It was imperative for the South Africans to get rid of these missile systems as they had earlier in the war in Kahama during the preamble to Operation Protea, for example. Easier said than done. While this was going on, the Cubans were analyzing the intelligence they gathered from the captured SADF vehicles and concluded that the South Africans were planning a major attack on Tachipa. The actual attack was to take out the surface-to-air missiles, but once again the SADF was hedging. If the Cubans retreated to Tachipa, the SADF would have followed up. Fidel Castro's 50 Division and their FAPLA allies spent much of the next few weeks into June 1988 reinforcing the defenses around Tachipa. They laid more mines, built bunkers, and dug anti-tank barriers, which had worked so well against the South Africans and UNITA around Quito Guanavali during Operation Packer. There was also a build-up of Cuban forces around the town and aggressive patrolling by Swapo and FAPLA forces to establish the positions of the South Africans. There was something else being put together. Castro planned an operation consisting of two parts. In the first, a two-pronged attack would be carried out. The one, a thrust from Zangongo to capture Cuamato, then a three-column advance from Techipa to capture Calque and to be joined by forces that had gone through to Komato. They had moved to the second part, which was an air attack on Ruokana if Techipa came under pressure from the SA Air Force. Castro sent a highly secret memo to both the Angolans and Russians explaining this coming operation. The South Africans were busy. On 30th of May and the 1st of June, operational instructions for Operation Hilti were released to the officers who were planning South Africa's invasion. The op was renamed Prone later, 
Development of a conventional and counterinsurgency plan for northwest, southwest Africa and southwestern Angola. The instructions also called for a sub-phase called Operation Excite to regain military control of southwest Angola by August 1988. Following Operation Excite, Operation Faction would begin its aim, the restoration of SADF influence in all areas of dispute within three weeks. The last op was called Florentine, as usual, it would be the installation of UNITA in the area of dispute, as HQ called it, and to support them against the far-planned Cuban attempt to retake the area. On the 27th of May 1988, Brigadier Chris Serpentine was appointed 1-0 SA Division Commander, while Colonel Roland de Vries was appointed his Chief of Staff. These SADF plans were like a mechanized woodpecker. Same idea repeated over and over. The plan would make use of 1-0 SA Division as well as elements of the SA Air Force, the SA Navy operating off the Angolan coast and the insertion of SA Special Forces deep in the Fapla Cuban rear. To counter the immediate threat of the Cuban advance to the southwest African border, the 1-0 SA Division team moved to southwest Africa on the 7th of June 1988 and that was to operational headquarters at Ashokati. They worked on the blueprint for the next 10 days. General Geldenace ordered 61 MEC to mobilize immediately across the Kuneni River at Kalkwedam towards Tichipa. Mark Muller and his mechanized units had recovered from the battering at Tumpo, spending four weeks in May reconditioning their outfit. The plan was formulated to send the SADF's all-important Ulifan tanks across the dam and deeper into Angola to deal with the SAM threat. The hitch was a low-level bridge that lay west of the wall could only take the weight of a rattle and then only just... It would crumble under the weight of the heavy Ulifan tank. There was also a road along the top of the dam wall, and that structure was deemed strong enough, but the war had put pay to the plan of building approaches on both sides. Muller intended sending his entire force into Angola in one batch overnight, so these approaches had to be built somehow and quickly. The Cubans had got wind of what was going on, and they expected some kind of SADF response. Two far field engineer squadron was called in, the team that had been based in the eastern theatre of operations. They were highly experienced in laying mines and building bridges, digging trenches and bunkers and mine sweeping. They would use bulldozers to create earth ramps up to the dam wall, but this was a job to be completed at night to make it more difficult to collect intelligence. But it also meant the sound travelled further and would have been monitored by the Cubans or Fapla. Still, they were hoping this would possibly escape notice and the South Africans began building the ramp immediately, pushing sand and earth against the dam wall during the night, then hiding the large bulldozers and graders during the day. The HQ for 1-0 Division, now in Ashikati, began to look at the order of battle, and the order of battle included one tank squadron of 11 Ulifans as part of 61 Mech, four Sai and three 2 battalions, along with 81 Armoured Brigade. That was large, including a G2 battery, armoured cars, anti-aircraft sections, engineers, signallers, medics, and a field workshop. 71 Motorised Brigade was comprised of two mechanised infantry companies made up of the Cape Town Highlanders, field regiments, signallers, and medical platoons, a Parabat battalion group of three companies, one Zero Artillery Brigade, and reserves. On the other side, the Cuban 50th Division was led by Brigadier General Patricio de la Guardia Font, made up of three Special Forces Battalions known as Spetsnaz, three tank battalions of around 110 tanks, an artillery regiment, six infantry regiments of up to 2,000 men each, three Cuban and Swapo raiding battalions, and missile air defense batteries, including a range of SAMs, with more than two dozen helicopters and about the same number of MiG-23s. 
the SADF was going to be surprised by the organization that faced them. But as you'll hear next episode, peace moves were well on the way, and this 23-year-long war that had killed so many was not going to last much longer. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head off to the website abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage, or direct message me on Twitter, at Deslathan. Until next, fast bait. Thank you.